diagnosed with right leg DVT two weeks ago, presents for scheduled extractions of teeth and placement of implants in your office. His INR is 2.5 and he asks if he should stop his warfarin before surgery. Welcome back to Oral Max Specs. This is your host, Rudy Patel, here with my favorite co-host, Mary McBarry. Hi, everyone. Rudy, I want to take a second and give a shout out to all our followers who keep us motivated by sending us feedback, comments, and suggestions. Yes, definitely. Thank you guys so much for your support. It has made this journey of production that much more fun. So as you all know, we don't make any money with this, but the purpose is to find novel ways to study and find information that I wish I had on hand while I was in residency. Yeah, totally. It's uh, fed our personality of being always on the move and kind of give us equal footing to our medical colleagues with all the podcasts out there. <laughs> so yeah, for the first absolutely. time listeners, you're tuning into Oral Max Facts, your one and only oral maxillofacial surgery podcast. So last week we talked about antiplatelet agents and in next few episodes we'll take time to talk about anticoagulant agents. I'm sure a lot of you deal with these in your practice so it's something that you should definitely know all about. So these topics are very relevant to our field and we'll try to break it up so you have separate and dedicated track um, if you need a quick refresher on your way to the gym or home or while you're on subway or in your car whatever it is that you're doing. So today's episode, we'll talk about heparin and warfarin, our favorite drug. Yes, bleeding is one of those complications that any every, every surgeon needs to know how to prevent and, tra- and treat. Uh, yes, bleeding is one of those complications that every surgeon needs to know how to prevent and treat. So let's dive in. <laughs> yeah, so let me start with my personal experience, okay? Uh, there was a patient that was referred by a general dentist for extraction of multiple teeth. And one of them being mandibular first molar, it ended up being a surgical extraction, no big deal. Patient was incumbent, but the INR was actually below 2.0. I felt comfortable extracting the tooth, packed with gel foam. Everything was nice and hemostatic, sutured it up. Um, you know, patient was discharged home. Next day, he returns with probably one of the worst floral mouth and submandibular swelling and ecchymosis I've ever seen. Um, I'm not even exaggerating. He kept spitting his saliva, couldn't hold his secretions down. Uh, we ended up obtaining a CTA which showed no arterial bleed. Um, it was purely from surgical manipulation from handpiece. So basically ended up keeping him in the hospital for three days with ICU observation, holding his anticoags. Um, luckily hematoma resolved significantly with no surgical intervention. Then he was discharged home with no complications. So that was a big lesson learned. Even if you follow everything by the book, don't think you're out of the dark, okay? So these are the medications you kind of have to be aware of and you have to let your patients know that complication can still happen. Yeah, I kind of remember when that happened. I I don't think I was on service or I was on a different side, but definitely with these cases is something that everybody makes them aware of the risk and benefit of taking care of patients with more comorbidities. Mm -hmm. So that's why we are focusing on a specific talk on heparin and warfarin, and we are going to talk about properties of heparin and low molecular weight, an indication to use a low molecular weight heparin, when heparin bridge is worn for patients that are on warfarin, and reversal agents for warfarin. 
So let's start with heparin. Heparin is a naturally occurring anticoagulant that binds to and activates antithrombin 3, which then inactivates thrombin and factor 10A in the coagulation cascade. So essentially working on intrinsic pathway of coagulation cascade, an interesting property of heparin is that it is not absorbed orally and it must be administered parenterally, either subcutaneously or intravenously. And once you administer it intravenously, it starts working almost instantaneously. Exactly, and heparin is available as unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin, the most popular one being Lovenox. So which patients do we likely to see to be on heparin? Mostly there are patients that we are treating for MI, management of AFib, pulmonary emboli, DVT, pregnancy, stroke, and um, some of the patients that are on dialysis. So that's mostly inpatient. Exactly. What about outpatients? Outpatients, we, we, we won't really see that many patients that are on like heparin drip, but most likely we will see patients that are on Lovenox. And uh, some of the patients that are in nursing home, they might be on heparin. So, and then another place that we really come into hand-to-hand with heparin is when patients are on warfarin and we need to bridge them. So talking about bridging, should we be concerned about patients with compromised renal function? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for the most part, the, the key things that we want to drive home is that with the unfractionated heparin, we don't need to worry about uh, renal dosing it or you know, patients that have renal failure. But if you are using the low molecular weight heparin, such as Lovenox, they tend to accumulate in patients with renal impairment and they need to be renally dosed. And actually, it was kind of like paradoxical for me because I was like, oh, it's low molecular. It should put, it's supposed to be like better because <laughs> it's like <laughs> low molecular. But um, I think the, the word is a little bit of a misnomer if you want to interpret it that way. But ultimately, it's extremely easy to monitor patients that are on any kind of heparin because we monitor for their PTT or anti-factor 10A activity. So what if the patient is pregnant, really? Is it safe during pregnancy or even during breastfeeding? So yes, pregnancy is important to mention because as long as it does not contain the preservative benzoyl alcohol, it is safe to be used during pregnancy. Both unfractionated and low molecular weight heparin do not cross the placenta. They also do not accumulate in breast milk and therefore they're actually pretty safe during breastfeeding as well. Interesting. I'm definitely sure that was a board question in one of my steps, many steps I have taken. Uh, In the clinical setting, though, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of our patients that are on heparin are actually taking Lovenox more than heparin drip. So speaking of properties, heparin has a short half-life. So knowing the half-life is important because it helps us figure out when to stop that particular drug before surgery if we decide to bridge the patient. Unfractionated heparin has a half-life of one to two hours while the low molecular weight heparin has a half-life of five to six hours. And for bridging purposes, it's kind of good to know that the therapeutic dose is different than the prophylactic dose. And the therapeutic dose um, for enaxoprine is one milligram per kilogram subcube BID or 1.5 milligram per per kilogram subcube every day. It's kind of easy to remember. And for those of us in residency or associated with hospital, the therapeutic dose for unfractionated heparin is little complicated. Is a little bit of a complicated math because many concentrations of heparin is kind of available in the hospital. 
The most important thing to remember is to do is to dose adjust as needed to achieve an a PTT 1.5 to two times the control PTT, and we have to make sure that patients have good liver function too. An easy dose to remember is 80 and 18, meaning 80 units per kilogram IV bolus followed by a continuous infusion of 18 units per kilogram per hour. But then again, this could be different based on the condition, service, or hospital. So when in doubt, we have to involve our medical colleagues, and a lot of hospitals have like a standard protocol uh, that they follow. So the first PTT check when you put a patient on heparin drip is six hours after the infusion, and then from there, we kind of adjust the dose based on the desirable uh, outcome that we want to achieve. Okay, so let's say you decided to brace the patient. When should you stop heparin before surgery? So according to the latest American College of Chest Physicians Evidence-Based Clinical Practice Guidelines, unfractionate heparin should be stopped four to six hours before surgery. A low molecular weight heparin, or Lovenox, should be stopped 24 hours prior to surgery. And when should we restart them? So that depends on the anticipated bleeding risk and the adequacy of post-op hemostasis. So in other words, there's no fixed time to resume low molecular weight heparin or unfractionate heparin after surgery. For patients with high risk for postoperative bleeding, therapeutic dose should be delayed for 48 to 72 hours after surgery when adequate surgical hemostasis has been achieved. If bleeding continues beyond 72 hours, options include a low-dose heparin bridging regimen or vitamin K anticoagulant resumption alone without postoperative bridging. So what if your intern forgot to communicate with the primary team to turn the, um, the heparin drip off, or there was a miscommunication, or if patient on therapeutic heparin requires urgent surgery? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, what is a quick reversal agent for unfractionate heparin? So one time I was in vascular surgery, and we had a patient that was hemorrhaging, and we had to use protamate sulfate uh, because patients on, was on unfractionated heparin. So that's right. Protamine sulfate reverses the unfractionated heparin action. So let's quickly just summarize the low molecular weight heparin versus heparin. So when it comes to bioavailability, there's a wide variability in, the, in heparin, which binds to the plasma proteins and the other cell, whereas the low molecular weight uh, heparin exhibits less cellular interactions and therefore has better bioavailability. When it comes to dosing, heparin has a dose-dependent half-life, whereas the low molecular weight heparin has a more predictable dose response, so it can be administered one or two times daily. When it comes to monitoring, heparin has to be monitored regularly, as we discussed, with, especially in the case of infusions and bridging. But again, with low molecular weight heparin, there is a predictable dose response. And dose can generally be given without necessary to monitor the PTT. What about side effects? Low molecular weight has less risk of significant bleeding and is less likely to cause HIT or osteoporosis, and we get into what is head in a little bit. So yes, no talk on heparin is complete without the mention of head, in other words, high-intensity interval training, right? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I just actually came from my first speed run, so, you know, I did all of one mile, and I feel like now I'm a marathon runner. <laughs> 
You go, girl. <laughs> People had actually finished eighteen miles run, and I think I like I was like huffing and puffing more. <laughs> yeah, but it... anyway, back to heparin. <laughs> okay, so back to hit.、Uh, what, I, what we really mean by hit is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Yes, of course. So one of the complications associated with being on a heparin is this condition called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. It's a. It could be a life-threatening condition, and it happens as high as five percent of the patients who are on heparin. I personally had multiple patients who got hit while I was on my general surgery and vascular,、um, vascular rotation. It's kind of both scary, but at the same time, it's good to know how to manage it. So the incidence of this being five percent is, of course, variable based on the study designs that you read. But there are some key points that we all should know as surgeons who potentially uses heparin. Right. So pathophysiology of HIT: abnormal antibodies, specifically IgG antibodies, are formed against heparin when it is bound to a protein called platelet factor four. Which then activates platelets and predisposes patient to thrombosis. And how should we know to suspect HIT? The platelet count decreases by nearly fifty percent from baseline around the fifth day. So that's why it's called thrombocytopenia. Of course, the disease don't read the textbook, and you can see HIT anywhere between five and fourteen days after the heparin is first given, but unlikely to be. There before the fifth day. Why? Because the development of antibodies against heparin takes about five days. I love when physiology and pathology just line up. It just <laughs> makes sense. So how should we diagnose head?、Uh, clinically, there's a four T score, which is helpful and easy to use. A score that quantifies the clinical findings associated with head based on four parameters: the degree of thrombocytopenia, timing. Thrombotic events or alternative causes of thrombocytopenia. So, if we have fifty percent thrombocytopenia hand in hand with the timing of it being on the fifth day, it's enough of a four T score to raise suspicion for HIT. And what's the gold standard test to detecting HIT? Is serotonin release assay. So, how do we manage a patient on HIT? So, management of patient with HIT starts with Discontinuing all heparin products and replacing it with non-heparin agents. There are a number of agents that can be used. A patient needs to be on anticoagulation because HIT itself puts the patient at a higher chance of thrombo- thrombosis events. And the decision about selection of anticoagulation in face of HIT is a multidiscipl- multidisciplinary one. So. That goes beyond the discussion of this episode. Okay, so now now we know all about heparin. <laughs> all right, so that's all heparin for you. Now we are on to warfarin. So warfarin is almost sixty years old, and for all you history buffs out there, the name comes from Warf, which stands for Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, and Erin comes from Coumarin. Take that. Yes, there's always a story behind every name. Warfarin, or as we all know it as Coumadin, competitively inhibits the vitamin K epoxide reductase complex one, which is an essential enzyme for activating the vitamin K available in the body, essentially inhibiting vitamin K-dependent clotting factors two, seven, nine, and ten. 
as well as protein C and S in the liver. Many patients are on Coumadin because they either have the history of PE, DVT, AFib, or prosthetic heart valve. Warfarin is a pretty dangerous drug for something that is used so re regularly. Why? Because it doesn't have a very predictable pharmacodynamic, which, takes, which makes frequent laboratory monitoring necessary to titrate the dosing. The, the target INR for most patients is between 2 and 3, although if you, your patient has a prosthetic heart, valve, patient, uh, prosthetic heart valve, then you're aiming for an INR of 2.5 to 3.5. Yes, I cannot agree more. And I know many surgeons, including myself, who have been burned by the instability of this drug. Warfarin half-life is around 36 to 42 hours. Hence, the normalization of INR may take about five days. And that is mostly because of the amount of time that is needed to reach the target INR, both when we start or stop the warfarin. So actually, initiating warfarin therapy leads to a temporary state of hypercoagulopathy, which lasts approximately three days because of the more rapid downregulation of anticoagulant protein C and S. So in high-risk patients, there is a concern for recurrent thromboembolism, and in those patients, we keep the heparin bridge longer. So perioperative management of patients on warfarin is the most pertinent information for us. When to stop warfarin, if at all? When should the INR level be checked before the surgery? Who needs a heparin bridge and who doesn't? And what tools are available to us in face of bleeding? So when it comes to periprocedural management of warfarin, there are two things the surgeon must consider. One, weighty thromboembolic risk to bleeding risk. And another thing to consider is the timing of the interruption of anticoagulation and the need for bridging. So when it comes to assessing the thrombotic risk, thrombotic risk for individual patients varies by each of the common indications, as well as by presence or absence of individual risk factors. That's a very vague sentence and we're going to break it up. Three main groups are AFib, DVT, PE, and mechanical heart valve. Here's a handy algorithm from different landmark clinical trials that will help you estimate the thromboembolic risk and assess the need for heparin bridge. If the patient has AFib, we have to look at the CHADS-2 score from the landmark bridge study. If the CHADS-2 score is between 0 to 2, no bridging is indicated. If it is between 3 to 4, then we have to ask the cardiologist. And if it is as high as 5 to 6, then we know that we must bridge. For patients who have had the history of DVT or pulmonary embolism, if pulmonary embolism was within the last 3 months, we have to postpone any elective surgery. If the surgery is emergent, then you must bridge or consider reversal and then bridging. If the pulmonary embolism was between three months to a year, then it depends on the nature of the surgery. If it's an invasive surgery with high bleeding risk, then it's best to bridge. If the PE was more than a year ago, then there is no need to bridge. Our last group are the patients that have mechanical heart valve.
only moderate to high-risk patients need bridging. Bileflet valve with AFib is considered moderate risk, whereas the bileflet valve with no history of AFib or thrombotic event is considered low risk. So traditionally, patients used to be hospitalized for heparin bridging. But now, thanks to the development of low molecular weight heparin, or Lovenox, we manage the heparin bridge on outpatient basis, which makes it much easier for both patients and the providers. So it is recommended that low molecular weight heparin be stopped 24 hours before the procedure. So Miriam, what patients do not qualify for low molecular weight heparin option? So patients that have chronic kidney disease, as we mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. there's a risk of accumulation and higher chance of worsening the bleeding, actually. At what INR is it safe to proceed with most oral surgical procedures, and when should you consider getting an INR? So, you know, that's a million-dollar question, and that's what we looked into a literature. Basically, the consensus is that the dental extractions and minor skin surgery are considered a low-bleeding-risk procedures. These procedures are typically safe to be performed if the INR is less than 3. And don't forget, the reading patient in the <laughs> earlier of the case of this episode had the INR of 2, so I have to take everything with a grant of salt. So and they technically, if the INR is less than 3, they don't require reversal or stopping the warfarin therapy. Ideally, a patient will have an INR level checked the day of surgery or within 24 hours. But depending on the patient's compliance and previous INR levels, you know, it is up to the surgeon preference to proceed with, you know, how recent of an INR they're comfortable with. Some people are comfortable with, you know, within a week even. If there's any doubt, you know, of course, we can always get a new one. Better safe than sorry. Another important thing is when to restart it. After the most outpatient oral surgery procedure, warfarin can be started within 24 hours at the usual dose. But having said that, we all know that taking out a single interior tooth is not the same as extracting multiple teeth or taking out a mandibular maxillary toroid. So let's talk about what oral maxillofacial surgery procedures are considered low-risk versus high-risk, and what is our INR goal for these procedures. These guidelines are actually from the clinics of North America. Low-risk procedures are single-tooth extraction or excision of soft tissue lesion less than 1 cm in diameter. These can be performed at an INR level of less than 3.5 with local hemostatic measures and no dosing modification of the drug. Medium risk procedures are multiple teeth extraction or extraction of less than equal to five teeth, excision of soft tissue lesion one to three centimeter in diameter, or placement of one to three dental implants. These procedures can be performed safely at an INR level of less than 3.0 with local hemostatic measures. Coumadin should be stopped one to two days prior and we started within 24 hours with the blessings of patient's primary care physician. High-risk procedures are extraction of greater than five teeth or surgical extractions, open mandible fracture repair, excision of soft tissue lesion greater than three centimeter, or excision or biopsy of heart tissue lesion, removal of maxillary or mandibular tori, and placement of more than three dental implants. These procedures can be performed safely at an INR level of less than 2.5 with local hemostatic measures. 
Coumadin should be stopped two to four days prior to surgery and be started within 24 hours, of course, with patients' primary care physician's blessings again. Thank you, Riti. That was, I think, very specific and very applicable information to have. <laughs> yeah, I think that was definitely very helpful. I mean, practically, you know, you still have to use your own judgment, but at least we know there's someone who did some study out there and gave us these guidelines. Exactly. And um, if you think about it, it's kind of a hard topic to do research. Like, how would you measure bleeding? And, Absolutely. You know, so it's not easy topic to, like, actually nail down to the last detail. The next question that comes to my mind is that when would be an appropriate time to check an INR when the Coumadin has been restarted? So the earliest changes in INR are typically seen 24 to 36 hours after the administration of a dose. Because it's dependent on the clearance of prothrombin, the antithrombin effect of warfarin won't be present until approximately the fifth day of the therapy. So let's talk about reversal agents for warfarin because, you know, this is obviously very important for inpatient as well as outpatient management. Well, mm-hmm. one thing you can do is you can feed a bunch of spinach or give vitamin yeah. K, PO, or IV, which can help replenish those factors to 7, 9, 10. But it obviously comes mm-hmm. with the caveat of long onset time, as well as side effects such as flushing, pain at the site of injection, and tachycardia, among others. So what are the current guidelines for using vitamin K? So for patients with an INR between 4.5 and 10, routine use of vitamin K is not recommended. For patients with an INR greater than 10 without significant bleeding, oral vitamin K is recommended. Having said that, for most patients receiving warfarin who have severe, obvious bleeding, vitamin K can be administered without waiting for lab tests or imaging studies because the risk associated with vitamin K are low. So what else can you give? Have you heard of PCC, prothrombin complex concentrate? That is your go-to drug. So according to UpToDate, for patients with serious bleeding and INR of greater than 2, Four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate is recommended rather than a three-factor prothrombin complex concentrate or fresh frozen plasma for rapid reversal, mostly because it has similar efficacy and lower risk of adverse events. Dosing depends on patient's weight and the INR at presentation. A typical dose for INR greater than 6 is 50 units per kilogram. And what's the difference between these products? So four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate contain all of the vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors, that is factors 2, 7, 9, 10, in their unactivated form. A three-factor prothrombin complex concentrate contains only factors 2, 9, and 10 in their unactivated form. A fresh frozen plasma, on the other hand, contains all coagulation factors except for platelets. And what is the advantage of using PCC over FFP? That's a really good question. So the advantage of using PCC over fresh frozen plasma is that you can restore all factors quickly in low volume. And hence, that avoids the risk for volume overload and trail or transfusion-related acute lung injury. Mm -hmm. For local measures, other factors such as TXA or aminocaproic acid could be used. For patients who can wait 24 hours before going to surgery, vitamin K dose 1 to 2 milligrams 
is typically sufficient to lower the INR. And in such cases, PCC and FFP can be avoided. Exactamento. So we covered a wide breadth of content on warfarin and heparin. <laughs> I bet you you didn't think we can take you guys this deep again. <laughs> so these episodes are meant to be in-depth review of relevant topics, and most of our listeners listen to them more than once to get most out of it. So, you know, if the first time was a lot to take in, go back and listen to it again. All right, so until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.